Look at this word, Father, the scripture we're going to be looking at tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, you would bless us, you would empower and help us, Lord, as the challenges that we face as individuals, as a congregation, as a nation, Lord, we will see that you are greater than our problems tonight, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. For some reason, I've lost my uh, advanced uh, clicker here, so I, I can't move the power uh, slide. So I don't know if you can follow along with me. It might be a challenge, because um, I skip slides at times. I think you've noticed that. Probably one of the most significant experiences I had in my early Christian journey was uh, basically an experience as it related to worshiping God and praising his name. And uh, it pertains to spiritual warfare. Do you find that, Tom? What a man. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Bailing me out. I don't even know where this thing got to. All right. So in Psalm 34, verse 1. I love this text of scripture, and I believe that so often in our lives, we need to act on what we're reading and not just read it and intellectually assent to the truth, but actually participate in it. In Psalm 34, verse 1, it says, I will extol the Lord when I feel like it. Oh, it doesn't say that, right? Because that's usually when we want to praise God. We feel good, we want to praise the Lord, right? But when we're challenged and we're a bit down and discouraged, we have a harder time doing it. How many think that's probably true? Just harder to praise God when things are not going our way. You know, we, we understand crying, we understand praying, but to really praise God in those moments. And yet when I read this text of Scripture, God is challenging us to learn to obey the text regardless of how I feel emotionally. This is how we move to a new degree of a spiritual dynamic in our life. And I learned this really quickly as a brand new Christian. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And uh, when I was brand new Christian, I was still single. Uh, I had moved to Everett, Washington from Mount Vernon, Washington. And I was uh, looking for this job. I looked in the paper. I saw a job opening for a cook. I've been able to do that. I've been cooking for a number of years. And so I can still remember the owners of the restaurant. They're taking me through the kitchen. They're explaining different things. You know, they said, we'd love to have you. You got the experience. Can you do this kind of food? Yeah, not a problem. I can cook all the stuff they had on their menu. So they basically said, we want you to work from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. That's called graveyard. So when the rest of the people are sleeping, you're going to be cooking food for people who are out at that hour of the night. Can you just imagine? The, I'm just giving you some imagination of the crowd of people that are going to show up in the middle of the night. Well, this particular restaurant had a notorious reputation in the city of Everett. I didn't know that. I'm just applying for a job. And uh, so one of the cues or clues that this was going to be an interesting job was when the owner said to me, now listen, uh, there's the restaurant part and there's the lounge part. If a fight breaks out in the lounge phone the police. I said, well, yeah, I mean, but I'm cooking, right? If something's going to burn, I said, forget about it. Just phone the police, because if you don't do that, there won't be anything to cook. I mean, these guys will just terrorize the place. So I knew I was in for a, a very interesting experience working at this restaurant. I probably worked there three months, and then uh, God brought me back to where I was working before. But it was interesting. I remember one time uh, working there one night, And you have to understand that being a single person, I I didn't know anybody in Everett. I met a family. They were Christians. That's the only relationships I had in the community. So, And my sister also lived in an apartment in the same uh, 
apartment complex, there's a number of buildings there. And I would just spend the days, you know, reading, studying the Bible, worshiping God. And my sister came over one day and she goes, man, your apartment feels like you're at church. You know, I just could get, feel the, the presence of God so strong. And I remember going to work one night and it was a very interesting night. How many have ever had that experience where a spirit of heaviness kind of descends on you? And it was very oppressive. I, I could feel it in my spirit. I, I, I just felt like, wow, there's a darkness here, you know? Anybody have ever gone through that? You could actually feel the darkness. And that's what was happening. And so uh, emotionally, it was affecting my spirit. And I made a decision I was going to start praising God. But you know how when you start out, you don't feel like it? Anybody relate to this? You just don't feel like doing it, but I just did it. Even though I didn't feel like doing it, I just decided to start praising God. So I started, and there wasn't a lot of emotion in it, and I was just doing it out of obedience, and I tried to start singing, and you know, I, I felt like it was just a battle to start singing. But you know, eventually, I could just sense the Spirit of God, and eventually, I was having, like David McFarland said last week in church here, I was having my own personal revival in the kitchen. Pretty soon, God's Spirit fell on me. I was worshiping the Lord. Tears are coming down. I'm dancing around the kitchen cooking orders, you know. And meanwhile, the crowd from the bar moves into the restaurant. Of course, in that restaurant and in many restaurants, you can actually see into the actual kitchen area, you know. And so those patrons now who have been trying to, you know, alleviate themselves from all their sorrows, drowning their problems, all this, hear this guy in the back, they're just seeing me just dance, cry out, praise, worship. I'm having a glorious time back there. And one of the patrons says to the waitress, could you go find out what that cook is on because I want some. You know, because they could see it. You know, it was happening there. And I said, you can go back and tell them I'm on Jesus. You know, uh, it was a lot of fun. But why I say all of that is that we need to recognize that in the presence of the Lord, there is what? Fullness of joy. And so you and I, actually, we're, we're the ones that are walking around God inhabits us. God's living within us. God's presence is within us. So if we're not experiencing that joy, it's one of two things. Either we're negating the presence of God because of some known willful sin in our lives, or we're not appropriating what God has for us. We're not experiencing the joy he wants to bring into our lives. So um, uh, Frederick Robertson once wrote, it is not a thing which a man or woman can decide whether he or she be a worshiper or not. A worshiper, they must be. The only question is, what will they worship? And so what he was basically saying is that every person is a worshiper. We're born to worship, folks. We're born to experience to actually uh, live for something even greater than ourselves. And so we begin to do that knowingly or unknowingly in our lives. The real battle is how the enemy is going to try to divert our worship from the true and the living God to something less than that. He wants to divert us from serving the creator to serving the creature, to serving ourselves, to serving other people. You know, we just move into a whole new realm. We move away from God's intended purposes. Warren Worsby says, when Satan tempted our first parents, his appeal was centered on worship. His approach was to question God's word. Has God indeed said, you will be like God? In other words, God was, you know, we are like God. We were made in his image. But he was trying to get them to realize that God was somehow holding back this knowledge of good and evil from them so they would actually be like God. And there is no missing 
uh, the parallel between Lucifer who said, I will be like the Most High, and the deceptive promises, you will be like God. So when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and they began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. I'm actually literally quoting the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. Because you see, you and I, we have an understanding of worship that sometimes is very limited. Can I just say worship is more than just singing? Worship is how I express my life, and it's 24-7. And we're all doing it. Every moment we're worshiping. We just don't understand or realize that we're actually designed and are actually worshiping. So it goes on to say here, Satan received the worship that he was seeking, and he's still receiving it whenever people substitute the creature for the creator and believe the lie that they can be their own God. He goes on to say that Satan's religion is the religion of substitutes. Worship anyone or anything but the true God. And Paul makes it clear that idol worship is actually demonic and is Satan worship. And I wrote a note, so much for comparative religions. Because, you know, the reality is simply this. When we're not worshiping the true and the living God, what are we worshiping? We're actually worshiping Satan, unbeknownst to ourselves. We just don't realize that. And one of the great conflicts, I think, in our lives is we're tempted to worship less than who God is. So when the Lord himself was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world in return for one act of worship. I think that's interesting. And what was uh, Jesus' response? You see, Satan said, I will give all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And the verb tense indicates that he was looking for a single act of worship. But Satan did not ask for service. But he certainly knew that whatever a person worships, he or she serves. Isn't that interesting? Like whatever you and I put first in our life, we're actually, that's our worship. That's what we begin to serve. That's why it's so critical that you and I worship who God is. And I'm going to just outline a little bit and say this about worship. Um, you see, we can actually be trying to worship God and the things of this world. You see, when you read the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we have this understanding that they were idol, the, the Jewish people were turning to idols. Can I tell you right now, it's a false understanding of the text. What they were actually doing was worshiping Yahweh and the Baals. They were doing both. And God says, you can't do both. You only can serve God. God alone is worthy to be served. And so sometimes as Christians, when we put material things ahead of God, when our priorities are skewed, what we're actually doing is worshiping Satan, and we don't even know it. Isn't that interesting? So we have to do a little deeper evaluation of what's going on. Uh, Worsby says it this way, that explains our Lord's reply, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Our spiritual worship, when we worship God, and what it means by spiritual worship, they, they that worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. We've read that in John chapter 4, verse 24. What that literally means is this. To worship in spirit means that you're worshiping God with the essence of who you are. It's your being. You're worshiping God you know, from your heart. It's not a ritual. It's not, you know, something I'm doing externally. It's something that's coming from 
within me. I am putting God ahead of everything else in my life. And when we worship God like that, it hinders Satan's work, it destroys his plans, it robs him of territory, and increases his hatred of God and God's people. As a matter of fact, he's happy to let us do anything else we want to do, for he knows that all of our man-made programs, no matter how seemingly successful um, they may seem, can never storm the gates of hell and defeat his demonic host. In other words, he's going to let us do all kinds of stuff. He's not even going to bother us. But if you really begin to worship God in spirit, now you're moving into spiritual warfare. You're moving into a whole new realm. And I want to take a look at that from a text in the Old Testament. And I know I've talked to people, and some of them said, you know, I really don't like the Old Testament because it's got all this stuff going on. People are killing each other, and I don't quite get it, Pastor, and I just don't relate to it. And I want to just say this. First of all, let's stop making 21st century judgments on people from another time. That's arrogance on our part, number one. We're not even in that culture. We don't even understand what's going on. Believe me, if you were living in a, in a more simplistic or different society, you'd be behaving a lot differently too. Number two, I believe that the Old Testament, we can learn from it because it's really an analogy of what God wants us to learn in the spiritual life. All those battles in the Old Testament are actually teaching us something about the spiritual battles you and I don't see in the heavenly realms. And that's what we need to understand. We're going to look at a battle, how God brought about victory for his people in a, in a conflicted situation. So I want to take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I want to look at three things we can learn about spiritual warfare from this event in Judah's history. The first thing that we learn is that we're in a spiritual battle. How many have kind of figured it out? You know, I'm doing all the right things, but my life seems to be falling apart at times. You ever have that experience? And we're going, God, I don't get you. Why don't you care about me? What's going on here? And I'm, I'm pointing out to you tonight, you're in a battle. You need to understand that. And I think we're shocked when we, when we have this idea we have an enemy. Because so often we see Christianity as a religion of peace, and it is. It's about bringing about reconciliation. But how many know that there's actually a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? And so a lot of us are peacekeepers. We avoid conflict at all costs. We avoid, we're, we're in the element of avoiding we're accommodating and we're compromising to ensure no hostility. We assume that's what Jesus means when he's calling us to be a peacemaker. But that's a peacekeeper. That all we're trying to, and we're not resolving anything. Actually, what a lot of times happens is people who avoid conflict at all costs actually are suppressing their emotions. There's a lot of anger and resentment and bitterness and hurt on the inside. And it flares out eventually, folks. And we, we kind of go, what's wrong with this person? Well, that's because they've been stuffing all those emotions deep within themselves. And it eventually will come out. You know, when I think of peacekeepers, I usually think of the United Nations peacekeepers. Canada's famous for being peacekeepers around the world, but what were we actually doing? The reality is we were trying to maintain a fragile ceasefire from two sides that had not found a long-term solution to their conflict. They were actually still at, they were still at war. We were just trying to keep them back from hurting each other. That's a peacekeeper. We didn't bring about peace. We're just trying to maintain a cessation of hostilities. That's it. So what is a peacemaker? Well, peace, uh, peacemakers are often the people who pay the price in order to bring together the offended parties. And so Jesus is the exact ultimate example of a peacemaker. What did he do? Jesus actually bore our sins in order for us to be reconciled with our Father in heaven. Jesus was the one who, when we were at enmity with God, 
He died for us so that you and I could be reconciled to God. His death is actually an action of making peace. We have peace with God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. How many see there's now a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? And Jesus said, blessed are the what? The peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. So what do I learn from this? I have to move outside of the thinking that there will be no conflicts in my life. Folks, if I'm a Christian, there will be conflict. Okay, just write that down. I will have conflicts. As a matter of fact, I want to shock you tonight and say, if I'm really walking with God, I'll have enemies. Okay? As a matter of fact, Psalm 23 says, God says, I will prepare a table for you in the presence of mine enemies. So we obviously need to understand that as a believer, we're going to have conflict and enemies in our lives. That's the first thing. Let me show you another New Testament text that teaches us that. Paul is writing, and he's writing to the Ephesians church, and he says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or strategies. So already we know we have an adversary, and we need to be armed in order to deal with that conflict. Now notice what it also says, our struggle, and that word struggle, we get the word agony from. It, you know, I could even paraphrase this and say, our hand-to-hand -hand combat. How many think hand-to-hand -hand combat sounds intense? You know, wrestling, our wrestle. We don't wrestle, it says in one translation, against flesh and blood. So we're not battling people. We're battling principalities here. We're battling the authorities and the powers of the dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily see the spiritual realm. All we see is the flesh and blood people that are seeming to be the, protagon or the antagonists in our lives. You know, we see them as the enemy, right? Can I just tell you that they're lost and broken and Satan's using them and Jesus actually loves and dies for them. So they're not our enemy. We have to love our enemies. But this is our true enemy and that's what Paul is telling us here. So I like what Warren Worsby writes about the nature of warfare that Israel was engaged in. He said, there is a sense that God, now this is what I wrote, I'll get to him. There's a sense that God allows the battle in our lives in order for us to grow strong in the faith. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 144.1 it says, praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Why does God let difficulty come to us? You know, we, we always misinterpret that and say, oh, God doesn't care for me. No, no. God wants you to mature. He wants you to get stronger. He wants you to become a spiritual warrior. He wants you to win battles. He wants you to learn to trust him. How many are seeing this? And so he wants you to become a warrior. Do you know God is a warrior? You know, I read the book of Revelation. He comes back as a warrior. You know, we need to see that. There's a spiritual battle going on. I'm not saying we're in a physical battle and the weapons we have are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not the kind of weapons we have. What are some of the weapons that we have as Christians? Prayer is a good one. But let me give you the ultimate weapon. This is gonna, you know, I don't think most Christians see this as a weapon. What does it say? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, taking thought captive and making every thought obedient to Christ. Can I tell you, every time we obey the word of God, that is the greatest weapon that we have available to us. How many see obedience as a powerful weapon in this battle? Isn't that great? I would write that down. Obedience, when I obey, that's my greatest weapon. When I submit to God, that's my greatest weapon. When I do the will of God, that's my greatest weapon. I'm defeating the enemy. 
All right. I like, Warren Worsby says this, in short, Israel was a worshiping army fighting the battles of the Lord, and if they were right with God, they had no difficulty defeating his en- their enemies. Read the Old Testament. Every time Israel was doing the right thing and there was a battle, God always intervened, always destroyed the enemies. How many see that? And when they did not please God, God allowed their enemies to shamefully defeat them, and God used them as an agent to discipline their lives. Isn't that interesting? So there's only one or two approaches to the battle. We're either going to win or we're going to lose. And if we're doing what God wants us to do, we're going to win. If we're disobeying God, we're going to lose. That's just simply what he's trying to tell us there. But let me move on to the second thing. It's how we respond to the spiritual battle. That's important. We need to identify what's happening in our lives. How often we respond to things that are happening to us in a wrong way. We're reacting and attacking people rather than seeing that there's an underlying issue and cause to this and there's something behind it all. And we're not gonna respond in the wrong way to this battle. So I think there's lessons from Second Chronicles chapter 20 that we can pick up. And I'm gonna zip through a lot of verses there, but I didn't put them on the PowerPoint. I want you to turn in your Bibles. I want you to look at Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're gonna start here. And first thing that I read is Jehoshaphat is alarmed and alert and quick to pray. In verse three, Chapter 20, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Okay, great problem. A major army massed against him. You know, all of a sudden he sees that he's outnumbered mightily, and they're coming to attack him. What's he do? He cries out to God for help. Probably the greatest prayer you can ever pray is help. You know, help. And I use that prayer a lot. Lord, if you're not going to help, we're in trouble here. Lord, you need to show up here. You need to reveal yourself in this situation. Notice it said they came together to seek help from the Lord. You know, I was reading this morning in Zephaniah. One of the great problems of the Jewish people at that time in his day was they stopped seeking God. Isn't that sad? You know, how many times Christians get lazy? How many times we get distracted? How many times we have the wrong priorities and we stop seeking God? And we get in all kinds of trouble. That's what we get to. You know, that's why we keep calling the church the times of fasting and prayer. Is there not a reason to seek God today? Is there not a reason on behalf of our country to pray for this nation and call out to God? Is there not a reason in our church family to say, Lord, we need your help to start winning maybe 80,000 people who if they don't come to faith in you will perish? Is there not a reason in your own personal life to seek the face of God so that you will be strong in your faith? But so often when crisis is about to approach us, what are we doing? We're oblivious to it. Notice what happened. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's warning them they're about to enter into a time of testing. It doesn't register. He says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. How many think that's a good prayer? How many know the Lord taught me every day, taught you every day, lead us not into temptation? How many know that there may be a crisis awaiting us and if we're not ready for it, we're gonna succumb to the pressures of it? We're, we're just oblivious to what's in front of us. But if we're walking with God and we're seeking God and we're praying, God is gonna prepare us for that situation. But look what happens here, verse 45. It says, when he arose from prayer, he went back to his disciples. He found them asleep, 
exhausted from sorrow. I believe today so many people are exhausted from all of the things that are happening to them. There's so much sorrow, there's so much pain, there's so much loss, there's so much heartache, there's so much brokenness. And you know what happens is we become demotivated. Isn't that true? And we can't even hardly pull our, our, ourselves up. And these guys were sleeping. And Jesus told them, don't go to sleep, pray, right? He said, here, come on, you guys. Uh, why are you sleeping? Isn't that an interesting question? Jesus is asking us, why are we sleeping? If we're not seeking God, he says, why aren't you doing this? Get up and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. Don't you think Jesus knew what was about to happen? Of course he did. Did these guys really understand what was about to happen? Of course they did not. And nor do you and I understand what's about to happen in our lives. We need to be seeking God. So what can we learn from Jehoshaphat at prayer here? Number one, he appealed to God's sovereignty, which literally means he knew who God was. Look at verse 6. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You roll over all the nations of the earth. He knew who God was. He said, you're the God over all the nations. There is not one nation you do not rule over. You're in control, God. You're bigger than this problem. Do you know what happens in our lives? We have problems, but we lose sight of who God is. Let me ask you a question tonight. Is God greater than your problems tonight? But sometimes we don't act that way. Sometimes we think our problems are so great, they're impossible to actually be solved. I'm declaring to you tonight, your God is greater than your problems tonight. We need to embrace that, and he knew that. There is nothing outside of God's authority. God can handle it. Jehoshaphat appealed to God's power, verse 6 again. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. I, I skipped over those texts in Romans because I was running out of time, but let me just go back and say what I was going to read there. It says, if God be for you, who can be against you? Listen, God is all-powerful. If God is on your side, all the demons in hell will shake. And no human being, no national organization, no institution is greater than the power of God. So you and I need to have a new confidence in how great and powerful God is today. You know, these guys eventually got filled with the Spirit of God, stood up to their government authorities when they were telling them they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus, and they said, we ought to obey God than man. They said, we're going to throw you in the slammer. We're going to beat you up for this. They said, go right ahead. You know, if Jesus had to suffer, we're prepared to suffer too. Maybe our sphere of ministry switches. You know, we move away from ministering to people in church to ministering people in prison. Amen. That's all. We're just changing avenues, right. folks. If you and I learn to trust God, there's going to be a new authority that comes into our lives. Jehoshaphat appealed to God's promises. He reminded God what he had earlier promised his people in verse 7. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And you gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name. And if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment, plague, famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and we'll cry out to you in our distress. And you will hear us and save us. What is he saying? God, you said you'd do this. I'm holding you to it. And you know what happened is we're going to read God did it because they believe what God promised he's able to do. You say, what about us in the New Testament? Are there any promises for us that we can actually dig our teeth into and go for it? I just thought uh, 
this one promise in 1 John. Listen to what it says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he asked of him. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. First of all, if I ask something according to God's will, God will hear my prayer and answer it. He has to do that because God cannot lie. All I need to know is what is God's will. You say, well, what is God's will, Pastor? God's word. All I gotta do is go through the word of God and start looking for what God's will is through his word and bring that word back to God and say, God, this is what you said. I believe it, and now I'm asking you to do it. It's powerful. But a lot of us, we just kind of go, I don't know if he's gonna do it or not. You can't be wavering like that. You gotta come with confidence before Almighty God. Finally, he appealed to their inability and weakness to change their current situation without God's help. Verse 11, see how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as in our inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power in face of this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I love that statement. How many have ever been to that place and go, I have no idea what to do? Anybody ever get to there? I have no idea what to do here, God, but I know you do. My eyes are on you, Lord. I need your help right now, God. I'll tell you, God did not let these guys down. I'll tell you that right now. They were appealing to God. I love that confession. The final lesson we learn about warfare is the results that happen when we trust God. God will speak to us words of encouragement when we look to him. Look at verse 14. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid. You know, a lot of us in this room, our lives are predicated and motivated out of fear. We do a lot of things because we're afraid. If we don't do our part, it's all going to fall apart. It's all depending on us. Can I just say something? It all depends on him. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Maybe some of you here tonight, you're afraid. Maybe some of you here tonight, you're discouraged. I'm declaring to you tonight, that's not how a child of God walks. We can walk with absolute confidence. We can walk with uh, a sense that, you know, we don't need to be discouraged. We need to be courageous, We need to embrace what God is saying. We need to move forward the way God is calling us to do these things in our lives because we need to stop looking to ourselves and look up to God. When we inquire of God, he will give us clear direction. They were told to go down there and march down there, and it says tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. Do you know God already knows what's going to happen in tomorrow? How many know that's true? If God tells you to go do something, just go do it. You know, he's already there covering the bases. He said, this is what I want you to do. And I love this. He says to them, you're not even going to have to fight this battle. You know, there are times when we do have to fight. There are times when God made the Israelites fight and God helped them win victories. But there are times when God tells us, just watch, back off. Let Let me see what I can do here. You know, have you ever heard those statements in the scriptures like, stand still and see the salvation of your God? Don't you love that story when the slaves were led out of Egypt and they came up to the Red Sea? By the way, who, where did God, God was the one that directed them to this trap in the desert. God was the one that led them to the Red Sea. Why did God do that? Because he wanted to part it. 
He wanted to have glory over the nation of Egypt. He wanted to release his people. He wanted to let the nations know that they were marching into, that they were messing with the God of all nations. And when the parting of the water happened, Israel went out on dry ground and their enemies walked into that water and were drowned. And all the nations in the land heard of this thing and they said, don't mess with these people because their God is the God of heaven and earth. I love that. God said to them, to Moses, these people were terrified. They were crying. They were screaming. Moses had the word of the Lord. He said, stand still and see the salvation of your God. Some of you need to hear that word tonight. Just back off. Stand still. I've got this. That's my paraphrase. Back off. I've got this. Let me handle this. I can take care of this. Wow. Powerful. What's the proper... uh, the response here to God's message of worship. Jehoshaphat bowed, it, bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. That's the only proper response. You know, let me tell you something. They were worshiping before the battle was even fought. They were worshiping because they believed that what God promised he was gonna do. You know, sometimes it's so good that you and I are praying and asking God for something, but can I just say something? Sometimes we just gotta move on and say, God, I've asked you for this, and now I'm just gonna start thanking you for it. I'm just gonna start worshiping you because I know how amazing and how great you are. I'm not even gonna ask anymore because I know you're gonna do it. I'm just gonna start thanking you for it. How many think that's a whole new approach to the situation? We've now shifted inside of our spirit. These guys started worshiping God. God spoke to them and said, I'm gonna do this. You know, sometimes we need to pray. I'm going to share this about prayer. We need to pray until we finally get a word in our spirit. This is what I'm about to do. God gives us something to hang on to, and then we just start thanking God. Okay, God, I'm going to hang on to this, and I'm going to just thank you for it. How powerful is that? And then we need to, uh, the leaders will notice here, they began to encourage the people with God's message. I think as family leaders, as pastoral leaders, as leaders of areas of ministry, we need to, you know, encourage people, just like these people were encouraging God's people. And then it says in verse 20, 20, you talk about vision. Listen to Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, or have faith in his word, and you will be successful. Have faith in what God said, and it's going to happen. And then we need to consult with other people in the process in implementing the right plan of attack. How many know they had to do something? And so what did, they, what did they need to do? And here's the plan. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat, verse 21, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. And they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Can you imagine this great warrior army going out They were a small band, but they had the musicians up front, and all they were doing was worshiping God because in their mind, they knew God was going to handle the battle. They were already thanking him. And what do we read? What happens to the story? It's so beautiful. What can we expect when we trust God? I'll tell you something. When you and I begin to worship God in high praises, this is what we can expect. It says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. You know, when you and I start worshiping God, what we're doing is exalting and worshiping his name. It's driving Satan nuts. He cannot stand it when we do this. It just, that's the one thing he hates. 
that God's people would just start enthroning God in his praises. But you know, there's another translation that says God inhabits the praises of his people. In other words, God is manifesting and moving and doing a work in human hearts. He's breaking down unbelief. He's tearing down discouragement and despair in our hearts. There's powerful things that begin to happen. And in verse 22, it says, and as they began to sing and praise the Lord, sent ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. And the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And after they had finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Isn't this amazing? The, the, the evil people that were going to destroy God's people began to fight with each other. And isn't that the nature of evil? Evil destroys itself. And all of a sudden, the Israelites were worshiping God while the evil was being destroyed in front of them. How many could say, I want to see God exalted. I want to see the evil destroyed in front of me. I want to see diseases healed. I want to see people delivered. I want to see people saved. I want to watch God do this powerful work in our midst as we're worshiping Almighty God. And when the men of Judah came to the place, they overlooked the desert, and they looked toward the vast army, and they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and articles of value, more than they could take away. And there was so much plunder, it took three days to collect it. Wow, God's going, hey, in the middle of this battle, you're going to be enriched. And I want to just declare to you tonight that when you and I win victories in God, we are enriched in our lives. And then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka where they praised the Lord. And that is why it is called the valley of Baraka to this day, the place of God's blessing. The battle was turned that day, and it became a place of blessing. And some of us in this room, we need a place of blessing in our lives. So I'm going to have a stand as we close the service. You say, what was the ultimate result of this battle? Verse 29, the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for his God had given him rest on every side. God says, there's nobody, nobody messing with you anymore. This is it. People just found out, don't mess with what I've touched, what I'm blessing, what I'm anointing. You don't even want to mess with what God's doing. Because something will happen to you. It's not good. So with every head bowed tonight, some of you are saying, Pastor, I'm in a battle. But I'm saying to you, stand still and see the salvation of your God. I'm saying you stand on God's promises. You declare before Almighty God. You cry out to him. You believe that God is going to do this. You begin to, you know, hear the voice and the word of the Lord. God is speaking into your spirit tonight. I am praying right now that you will stand and watch God do a miracle in front of you. How many here say, Pastor, I need that in my life? Just raise your hand. I need that in my life. There's hands all over the place tonight. I tell you what, the rest of you, maybe things are going good. I want you to raise your hand too. Why? Because you're going to pray for your brother and sister. We're going to pray right now that we're going to see victories. See, I got my hands up. You know why I got my hands up? Because I have a nation that I'm deeply concerned about, the nation of Canada. It's broken, folks. It's broken. We need to have deep repentance in this nation. There needs to be an outpouring of God's spirit. There needs to be a change of heart and mind. We have so much arrogance in this land. We have so much, you know, nonsense that's going on. The way people think is so broken. We need to have the spirit of God sweep over the land of Canada. 
We need to have the Spirit of God sweep over our city. We need to have people turn their hearts towards God. We need to have God move supernaturally. I believe God wants to do miracles, folks. I am more convinced than ever that Canada needs profound and powerful miracles to transform the hearts and minds of people. And God is going to do it. God is going to do it. So, Lord, we come up before you tonight. We thank you for the victory. We thank you right now that you are going before us. Lord, I pray right now that every ounce of discouragement is within our human heart will be dissipated. I pray that faith will arise. I pray that your presence would arise. I pray that we would begin to extol your name. I pray that we would exalt you. I pray that you would manifest yourself in our midst, Lord. And even as we come together Monday night and as we begin to sing the high praises of Almighty God, may such a warfare happen in this place that the powers of darkness will be stripped and dethroned in the realms of... Uh, we need to see happen in our own personal lives and in the lives of people we love. I just pray, Lord, that you're going to do miracle upon miracle. We're going to see amazing things happen in the days become. You're going to make this place a great blessing. You're going to make people's lives a great blessing. You're going to make this city a great blessing. You're going to make our nation a great blessing, Lord. There's going to be great repentance in our land, oh God. There's going to be a turning to you, Father, and turning away from evil and sin and perversity, oh God. I believe that you're going to do miracles, oh God because you want to reach us as a nation, as a community, Lord, as individuals, as families. And we thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.